Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions on international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. In our last episode of 2018, we talked about trade and how the Trump White House has repeatedly tried to describe it as an issue not just of economic importance, but also national security importance. Today, we're going to tackle the second half of that sea change in U.S. foreign policy, an increasing focus on immigration from a national security context. There are undoubtedly times when it makes sense to talk about immigration and foreign policy together. Just look at Europe, where states' responses to the conflicts of the Arab Spring often had to combine a foreign policy angle with a response to a broader refugee crisis that was an immigration issue. But a lot of the things that that Donald Trump talks about when he's talking about immigration, national security, things like terrorism, crime, Chinese espionage, foreign students, a lot of these seem overblown and difficult to connect to real national security threats. So joining us today to try and make sense of the Trump administration's uh, immigration policy and the extent to which immigration matters or doesn't matter for national security is Alex Narasta. Alex is a senior policy analyst here at Cato, where he works on immigration issues. Uh, he's been one of the Trump administration's most vociferous critics, and his work on immigration and terrorism has been widely cited in opposition to this administration's policies. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, and I must say I'm a uh blushing due to the introduction. Thank you. I, I appreciate vociferous. <laughs> well, well, we'll start with uh, not with immigration, but with uh, foreign policy. We can bring it back to areas that you don't typically work on. Um, and so we'll start with our news bits. Uh, so since we did our last podcast, the president has announced that the United States will pull all troops out of Syria immediately. Then he backtracked. Then he backtracked on the backtracking. And at this point, I'm honestly not sure whether we're pulling troops out or not. So do we have any idea what's going on on this issue inside the administration, inside Syria? Inside Trump's head, I think, is where you'd need to look for that answer. I mean, I think this is one of the pathologies of Trumpism is that you have no idea what the policy is from day to day. And it doesn't matter what policy we're talking about, whether it's foreign policy, immigration, what doesn't matter. He gets so far ahead of his advisors because of, I don't know, something he ate, something he read, he tweets, policy has changed for about a day. Then his advisors rush to grab him and beat him up in the back a little bit. And then he says, I didn't mean what you thought I meant, you fake newsers. It actually, what, so how do we know? How could we possibly know? And it becomes even more difficult because I don't think he really has an ideological lodestar at all, with the exception of perhaps one issue uh, of a uh, trade, maybe immigration. He seems to have a consistent worldview on that. Anything else seems pretty malleable. You know, he is interesting, though, because he does seem to have a consistent worldview that American troops shouldn't be fighting stupid wars overseas. But then he also seems to have a consistent worldview that American troops should be uh, over there smashing bad guys. And so it, I don't even see how he can reconcile those two. And the Syri- Syria issue seems to be the the intersection of those two qualities. Yeah. Fighting and staying are two different things to him, clearly. And I think he likes the smashing, but the staying part, he's not he's not down for that. Well, we will wait and see what happens with Syria, but I think it could be months before we actually know. Let's move on to the second topic of the day, uh, and that's personnel upheaval in the Trump administration. So related to the Syria question, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis uh, resigned evidently in protest over Trump's decision to withdraw from Syria. Um, And I doubt any of us expected it to happen this suddenly, but we had expected that he'd be the next to leave the administration. So the big question is, what does this mean for the Pentagon? 
Yeah, good question. I mean, this is sort of the uh, the part B of the pathologies of Trump. I mean, the first one is that he's incoherent and inconsistent because I think, as Alex rightly points out, he doesn't really have a North Star guiding him. And the, and part B of that is his whipsawing and disrespect, basically, through doing that of his senior advisors leads to uh, the Mattis leaving and and you know any number of others at this point. Um, that's that's what you get when you treat people like they don't matter in your administration. We've got a couple of possible replacements on the table. Jim Webb, although Trump has now stated that perhaps he wouldn't want him. And Patrick Shanahan, who uh, is the currently one of the deputy secretaries of defense, is now acting in the secretary of defense role, former executive from Boeing. Both of those seem like polar opposite choices, right? Yeah. And again, I mean, does that surprise anyone? Trump has no, there's no Trump bench of people who are reliably whatever Trump is, because there isn't, there's only one of those people. And then, you know, you get basically the rumor mill, you know, Pence likes Webb. I don't know why. So he talks to him. And I guess a f several different people kind of confirmed that to the Times who reported that Webb was under consideration. But I doubt Pence asked Trump about that because Trump's first word is, oh, uh -uh, that's fake news. And Webb's gone. And now Shanahan. And it seems to me from the scuttlebutt, I'm picking up that it's probably Shanahan because there's really no one else. And, you know, <laughs> is it going to matter? You know, the weirdest thing about that actually, though, is that Pence and Webb could not be further apart on foreign policy, um, whereas actually Trump and Webb aren't as far apart as you might think. They both actually do share some principles in common, particularly this idea that it's, that it's okay to go out and smash people abroad, but then you don't stick around. And that's always been Webb's line on foreign policy. So this is just really strange. Yeah, I don't. I don't even pretend to understand it. Although the idea of putting a Boeing exec in charge of the Pentagon is just sort of a sad irony. Okay, so our third news bit of the day is a little different. Uh, China announced that it successfully landed a spacecraft on the back of the moon, something no other country has done before. Uh, US policymakers seem pretty indifferent. Has something changed in how we view this kind of achievement? Absolutely. I think we've realized since the space race that most things in space are worthless. Uh, very expensive to get to, um, unless it's in like low Earth orbit or maybe a little bit higher orbit. It's not really uh, valuable or useful. It's a huge expenditure of resources on national prestige and pride. And uh, countries seem to have found other ways to express that that actually matter more to um, you know the well-being of their citizens or the longevity of their government than putting people on um, dead objects a long way away with no commercial value. Spoken like a true libertarian, Alex. I, I, that's a fantastic response. But I think viewed from a, a somewhat different angle, you can look at this as an interesting data point. Why would China do this now? And I think the you know clear answer embedded in your good answer there was was the prestige, right? China is feeling its oats right now. They're feeling strong. They're feeling wealthy. They're feeling powerful. They want to show people that they're a superpower. This is a stupid, pointless, but very effective way of maybe doing that. Yeah, economists like to call these types of things signaling. Uh, it's hard to measure the capability of a country uh, directly. There's no capability measure. There's lots of different things. Uh, so you have to do things to signal to other countries that, yes, we are powerful and strong by doing things that are correlated with being powerful and strong, including huge massive expenditures on projects that have no return on investment. And I say this as a space nerd. I do quite enjoy things very related space. I read too much science fiction. Um, but, you know, the person in me who has, you know, budget concerns uh, realizes what a waste it is. It's like the NBA slam dunk contest. This doesn't win you any games itself. It's a pointless, you know, frippery, frippery, but it looks cool. And, and people think you're awesome when you do it. 
Yeah, I mean, I could understand in the 50s when the Soviets launched Sputnik, uh, okay, you can put a satellite into orbit. That means you can also put a rocket pretty much wherever you want it with a nuclear weapon on it. That seems like a valuable signal with real national security implications, powerful deterrent, also projection of force. Putting a rocket on the moon, now that we, you know, China has missiles, we have missiles, everyone, a lot of people have missiles. Not quite sure. Yeah, more than a signal, actually, too, because putting Sputnik up meant that they could take pictures of the continental US without having to resort to spy planes to do it. That actually was a strategic concern. But given that the IR literature suggests that this is predominantly about prestige, I still find it fascinating not, not to say, well, why is China doing this? Because that's obvious. But to say, why do US policymakers not care anymore? Because I, I agree with you, the economic arguments are there, but policymakers have never been particularly persuaded by those kind of arguments. Well, and there, I think you might look to a couple thoughts. I mean, one is that our agenda is overfull, and we just don't have time to care about everything. We, we really we're we're so busy chasing Trump around these days that a whole bunch of things that otherwise might get a little more attention are just aren't. And I think the second thing is, you know, we don't have a space force just yet. Um, give them a couple of years. If this had happened when space force was up and running and, and saw the moon as fully part of its domain, there would be calls to put a base up there and start lobbing rocks at China tomorrow, probably, right? I mean, because that would seem like a threat to certain people. And I'm sure within the Air Force, there are people who look at this and they freak out and they're probably writing little memos and whatnot, but but they don't have anybody's ear right now because Trump doesn't care and you know who else does? So. Yeah. And falling back on my uh, public choice training in, in undergrad at George Mason, um, I have to think like, what's the constituency of Americans who are super worried about this? Um, there are undoubtedly some people who are worried about China and who like space, but compared to other national security or perceived national security issues in the past, it seems um, fairly small by comparison. It's immigration's fault that we don't care about this, Alex. That's that's why. We, you're sucking up all the heat and light over there and, and, and China's getting... It's all the illegal of... immigrants from the moon. Yeah. Well, I think that provides us a good <laughs> that's segue. That's a special our... interest alien for sure. Yeah. <laughs> into our main topic of the day, right? So um, we're, we're going to talk about immigration, um, but immigration in the context of American foreign policy, because that is how the Trump administration has explicitly framed this. They put it in the national security strategy. They talk about it constantly as a sovereign nation has the responsibility to control its own borders. Um, and when we chose this topic to be on the podcast, we also didn't realize that it was going to be so timely. Uh, as we record this, we're about two weeks into a government shutdown, the longest government shutdown in history that is entirely about the Trump administration and, and Donald Trump personally's desire to build a wall on the southern border. Um, so, Alex, why don't we start with that? Can you talk us through a little of what's going on in the news at the moment on this topic? So I'm sure uh, we all remember this, but when President Trump announced that he was running for president, uh, he made immigration his number one signature is issue. Uh, this is the first time in American history where the presidential campaign was focused entirely on this. I mean, where it was focused mainly on this issue, where this was the biggest issue that had never happened before. Um, so this was sort of a unique, uh, unique issue. He made his number one immigration issue that we're going to build a wall. Mexico is going to pay for that wall. And that's going to be what's necessary to stop illegal immigration. He has not succeeded. There has not been one additional foot of border wall built since he took office. This is the number one promise he made to his uh, base, to the American public. His base is noticing that nothing has been built. And ever since the sort of shellacking he took in the midterm elections, um, 
you know, a lot of other presidents, I think, would have seen that and decided to try to broaden their base of support. Um, his reaction seems to be, we're going to double down on getting the support of my base, expanding that, making that maybe a little a little um, more resilient to political shocks. So he uh, now that there's a budget fight coming up, he has decided not to uh, approve any kind of budget compromise going forward unless it includes $5 billion for a border wall. Um, $5 billion, by the way, is not enough money to build a wall on the border. Uh, the border is about 2,000 miles long. We have about 300 miles of wall already to keep out pedestrians or uh, people walking or trying to climb. Um, another about 350 miles for vehicles. So we need about 1,700 more miles. Um, the most um, fantastical estimate put out by the government about how much this would cost would be about $23 billion. We know given government construction projects, that's pretty low. $5 billion, of course, um, wouldn't even cover that. So uh, that that's where the battle is. Uh, Democrats do not, of course, want to give the president this symbol. They took control of Congress just a few days ago. They don't want to give it to him. And that's why I think this shutdown could continue for quite a while longer. So I want to hit on a couple of points that you mentioned there, because I think it's, it's interesting the way that we, you know, the wall is clearly in this context, a physical object. We're talking about something we're going to build on the southern border that's going to, uh, you know, block people physically from entering. But you also say, well, the Democrats don't want to give Trump this, this symbol. And the other way the administration's been treating this, right, is basically a euphemism. The wall is a barrier to immigration, even though most immigrants don't actually come through the southern border, right? Yes. So if we were having this debate in the mid-1990s, um, then a wall would be, I think, a reasonable thing for an immigration restrictionist to put out there as a potential barrier. Back then, almost all illegal immigrants were Mexicans. They're literally crossing the border illegally in the desert or with a smuggler. Uh, nowadays, uh, since 2013, um, about 70% of new illegal immigrants have entered legally on a visa. They've flown in, they took a bus, and then they overstayed their visas. Um, illegal immigrants now are, um, a majority of them uh, come from Central America. Um, you know, Nicaragua, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, these countries, not from Mexico anymore. Uh, Mexico has fallen off as a sending country. So this is um, really a uh, border strategy meant for the past. It's not meant for that going forward. Yeah. And, and so the thing that's really interesting to me is how the wall moves from a, a, a policy proposal to a symbol to eventually, one imagines, a litmus test for both Republican and Democratic candidates for 2020, you know, where now it's like do or die, even though no one can even remember the original reason why we wanted the dang thing. It seems like Trump Trump has really done a job. I mean, I, I did some, some looking up at how much news Trump has generated compared to past presidents, both on this issue and just more generally. And, and Trump's the, the news focus on Trump is like three times higher than Obama or and even higher than that compared to Bush. I mean, I think he has just put this issue so much more on the public burner than it ever was, even during the Gang of Aid, all that. I mean, that was like a, a low, low, a low, dull roar of discussion compared to what it is today. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I'll say about this president, politi politically, he is... A genius. I don't know. You know, part of the the wall and immigration being an issue is that people are have cared about it, and he took advantage of that. 
and he used it to ride into the White House. The other section, the other side, though, was sort of a supply side argument. Um, he created this issue in a way. He made it huge. He expanded it. And now a lot more people care about it than they ever did before. And that, in a way, uh, is brilliant. And focusing on something like a wall, right? It's It's simple. Everyone can understand it and everybody can know if it exists or not because you have a picture of the thing. If I talk about uh, as a candidate, like I'm going to make sure that every American has health care. Well, what does that like? What does that mean? Like uh, staring at a spreadsheet of statistics, um, uh, having a debate about sort of things that are abstract and, and difficult to understand or taking a look at a piece of paper in your pocket. No, but standing in front of a big wall and Trump having a background in property development, he understands this a lot more. It's it's really simple. It's to the point. Um, it's also, of course, a technology that's like 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 years old. Um, and it is totally ineffective. Um, and it serves two functions. One is, you know, the, the actual practical function. Some people in Border Patrol say it's going to help. Um, maybe, probably not. But it's also sort of this simple, like America is going to become something else. It's sort of this blood and borders closed uh, society. We're not going to like uh, immigration more. We're not going to let people um, uh, come here uh, willy-nilly. Yeah. Well, I, I do think this provides us a bridge into the national security realm, though, because um, when he was creating this issue, one of the things that Donald Trump did was to highlight the things that a wall will stop. Right, And he really means, I'm going to cut down on immigration and it will stop these things. It will stop crime. It will stop terrorism. Those things are flooding across our southern border. It will stop drugs from coming across. And again, it's always a focus on the southern border too. I should note, we, we do actually have two borders, but uh, <laughs> he only cares about the southern one. So all of those things Trump basically used as, as fear-mongering, right? Uh, what does the data actually say about those things? Is he right that whether or not a wall will stop it? Is he right that immigration is a risk of those factors? So uh, the one he was most famous for early on was crime. He said, uh, you know, Mexicans are coming. They're not bringing their best. They're, they're rapists. They're murderers, etc. And I'm sure some of them are good people. Uh, when you take a look at the data, um, illegal immigrants are less likely to be incarcerated than native-born Americans. Um, when you take a look at the data from the state of Texas, which is a great border state to look at, the only one that counts illegal immigrants and people convicted by immigration status, they're about half as likely as native-born Americans to be convicted of a crime, uh, about 25% less likely to be convicted of homicide relative to uh, native-born Americans. And these relationships hold even if you account for like recidivism because these folks are deported. So the crime issue is not 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 an issue um, that that we can tell economics. Um, the peer-reviewed academic literature is of one mind on this. Even the most skeptical economists like George Borjas of Harvard will admit that immigration on net is a positive for Americans in terms of their incomes in the United States. So that's not really uh, an issue. He was concerned. Trump was concerned about cultural issues. Um, you know, the, this sort of amorphous fear of like foreigners and not assimilating whatnot. Um, a lot of the evidence we have shows that immigrants today are either assimilating at a rate similar to those who came 100 years ago or faster on many metrics. Um, it takes about 20 years for an immigrant on average to uh, for their wages to rise to that of an American with same education and, and age in the United States. So that's pretty good. Um, and it's pretty good. Um, you know, we, we have the, the the infamous comment where it was, quote, uh, S-H-I-T, whole countries. Trump mentioned Norway as being not one of these countries. In fact, uh, Norwegian immigrants in the past were negatively selected. They actually assimilated quite poorly. Um, they had one of the highest return rates of immigration in the early 20th century. And then there's terrorism. 
which is sort of, I think, as far as I can tell, the last argument that people use when they have no other argument left uh, to support their public policy issues. Um, and, and that is the one that is dominating um, today. Along the southern border, there have been um, zero terrorists who have entered, who have committed an attack on U.S. soil that killed anybody since 1975. Um, and I doubt before then there has been one who has entered along the southern border who has killed anybody in a terrorist attack domestically. There are three terrorists who did enter in 1984. They are the Duka brothers, D-U-K-A. They are ethnic Albanians from Macedonia. They came when they were little kids. Um, they lived in North Carolina, and they were all arrested in 2007 as part of the plot to bomb Fort Dix. Um, so obviously they came in as kids. They were not planning this for over 23 years, this incompetent attack when they have come in. A handful of people have crossed the southern border, southwest border, who have been uh, uh, arrested and convicted of terrorism-related offenses, such as raising some money overseas um, and things like this. But when Trump and these folks talk about terrorism, they're not as worried about people raising $500 for al-Shabaab. Well, that's a crime. That should be a crime. Uh, that's not what they're worried about. They're worried about something like the San Bernardino attack in 2015 where 14 people were murdered. And there just does not seem to be that much evidence. And there are some really laughable statistics out there that try to get at this, uh, try, try to prove this point. And they're just all silly. Well, so maybe this this is a question then less about the southern border, because we focused on that almost exclusively, and a question of immigration more generally, right? So the Trump administration really is framing it as southern border, illegal immigration, you know, crime, terrorism, etc. But actually, they've taken a lot of steps to try and restrict legal immigration, right? Um, and they're also talking about immigrants that do come in through other means. They're just not publicizing it in the same way. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, in 2018, the denial rates for uh, visas to the United States coming on a work permit, uh, etc., are up 37% from what they were in the last year of the Obama administration. They are making sure that like every I is dotted, every T is crossed. And this is important for immigration because it's arguably the second most complex area of US law after the income tax. So it's very easy to make mistakes. And it's very easy to make a mistake in a way that will get you denied the ability to come here legally. So you see this in a, a students coming here is about 20% drop off in foreign students coming to the United States. Uh, that is uh, very bad for US universities and for US students because um, foreign students pay a lot more, subsidize the rest of us <laughs> going to universities. So this is part of just a, a broader pattern. The president is not just against illegal immigration. He is against legal immigration. All of the actions he's taken are against both. He talks more about illegal immigration. That's the stuff that riles people up. But he's doing lots of uh, taking lots of actions to cut the legal aspect as well. Yeah, this, this seems, you know, I, when I look at the national security arguments. Uh, I think there are two layers to it. And I think the dominant layer, the Trump layer, is BS. Because the 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 you know the securitization of immigration is is to me a completely political BS maneuver. It, it's not based I don't think Trump really thinks, nor most of the Trumpies like Stephen Miller, really think it's that big a deal from a national security perspective. They're not stupid people. So you have to ask yourself, why are they doing it? Well, pretty easy why they're doing it, because their base is the kind that can be riled by security issues very easily when it's when it's a cultural 
defense issue like this because their base is also the very same people who are the most disposed to a America is for white people. It's for people who were born here, et cetera, et cetera. And the security thing is just sort of like icing on top. But the thing that worries me longer term, because then the question you have to ask yourself is how long does the securitization of this issue last post-Trump? And it'll dwindle, but but it won't dwindle fast enough or far enough if during this period he convinces enough people that there's actually something real to these arguments, despite the lack of data. If people repeat things long enough, they often think they're true. And so I think we have a risk of, of a, uh, creating a certain number of DC foreign policy and immigration policy types who actually believe and perpetrate this baloney thinking it's real. And, and this is where I think the, the interesting point about some of the evidence comes in. The um, government when Trump put in place a travel ban, he asked um, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice to put together a study to look at the risk of foreign-born terrorism. Uh, and they put together a study listing basically uh, about 500-some uh, people since 9-11 who have been convicted of terrorism-related offenses. Um, terrorism-related um, doesn't necessarily mean terrorism, of course. Uh, if they start investigating you for, say, um, buying a service-to-air missile in North Carolina, turns out you didn't do that, but you did purchase some stolen cereal and sell it, then they and you get convicted of that grand larceny, they count that as a terrorism-related offense that actually happened to the Abu Ali brothers uh, right after 9-11. So it's, it's very bad data, but the government put out a report in response to uh, um, the president's request as part of the travel ban order, um, and they recently got sued under the Information Quality Act, which requires the government to actually put out quality data produced through decent social science methods. And uh, the government basically admitted, yeah, a lot of this data is nonsense. Uh, the way you portrayed it is silly. Um, basically, it's fake news. And um, there are unfortunately some think tanks in the city who um, try to pump that out and make everything out of it um, that they can. Interestingly enough, Stephen Miller, when he worked for uh, Jeff Sessions, did basically the first version of that report um, uh, sometime after 2010, where they listed all the people convicted of terrorism-related offenses and said, see, three-fourths of them are, uh, are foreign-born. And it's just part of the problem I find with terrorism in general is it's a little difficult to define on some margins, where does an insurgency end and terrorism begin, normal crime end, you know, terrorism begin. But we're also talking about a very small number of individuals, a small number of events, um, someone that can be quite tragic, like 9-11. Um, but if you take a look at the, if you line up all foreign-born terrorists, take a look at the median, line them up by the number of people that they killed in an attack, uh, the median person killed zero. So it gets a lot of play, and sometimes there are like horrible tragedies that occur, terrible murders that occur during terrorism. Um, but it's a pretty small phenomenon, all things considered. Not the biggest risk, but it's one that really makes... Um, I think uh, Americans and people all over the world, frankly, scared. Let's turn uh, to some of the foreign policy questions that this raises, uh, too, because we mostly focused on sort of domestic national security issues. Um, the Trump administration has also been very effective at creating the idea that there is a crisis on the southern border um, and that asylum seekers in particular uh, are such a threat that they're at risk of overwhelming the border. Um, and this is really a question of foreign policy, right? Because we're talking about people fleeing countries in Latin America that have high rates of crime, uh, you know, insurgencies, conflicts in some of those countries. Um, and the Trump administration is sort of metering the, uh, the, the rate at which those people can actually apply for asylum at the southern border, thus sort of creating large groups of them at the border and sort of creating the crisis that they're talking about. 
are there other foreign policy approaches that we could be using here? Would would any other administration be treating this differently, or or is this something we'd always be doing? So there was a problem with this surge of um, unaccompanied alien children, is what um, s- some of these are called, um, during the Obama administration, and. Uh, the Obama tried a few responses. One was to get the Mexicans to do more to close their border, which they did do to try to prevent these pe- folks from coming. And the second was to create a way for these people to apply to come here from their home countries on a humanitarian visa. Because when you apply for asylum, you have to show up at a U.S. port of entry and come in that way. Uh, there's really not like a refugee way to go. So Obama tried to create that. Not many people were able to take advantage of it. Uh, Trump, of course, canceled that. So that'd be one way to try to deal with it. The other way is it, it is true these folks are applying for um, asylum and, and some percentage of them do get asylum. But I'm increasingly skeptical that the bad humanitarian conditions, the chaos in these places is what's pushing these people out. I'm increasingly skeptical about that. There have been gang truces in places like El Salvador before and murder rate will drop from, say, 40 per 100,000 to 3 per 100,000 within the course of a few months. It'll stay that way for about a year, uh, while the emigration rate um, will will double or triple from those places uh, to the United States. So I think this has a lot more to do with economics. These folks have family members in the United States. They know how good things are here. There's no way for them to enter legally. But if they come to the border, they ask for asylum, there is a good chance they'll be let in. While they're waiting for their, um, if they pass their first interview, there's a good chance they'll be waiting for their next interview. Uh, They'll be able to work unlawfully in the United States, but they can be here legally while waiting for that. So this is really a, um, the president says it's a loophole. I I don't think asylum should be described as a loophole, but there is a way to enter um, (laughs) legally and then work illegally. A lot of these folks, you know, they're not dumb. They're poor. They're desperate, but they're not dumb. They figured out uh, this way to do it. So I think this is just... Another response to an immigration system like ours, which lets in virtually no low-skilled people to work here legally. Now, that being said, the violence has probably mattered in the past and matters to some degree. And a lot of that has to do with our horrible war on drugs and our subsidization of the governments in these parts of the world to um, basically crack down as much as possible. And the uh, profits that drug gains and cartels realize because it's a black market. Um, so I think that legalizing drugs or at least stopping to subsidize the war of drugs overseas is something that can help considerably. My colleague David Beer recently put out a paper about how marijuana legalization, just a handful of American states, has drastically cut the amount of smuggling of marijuana across the border. Um, I think continuing that trend as well as um, widening it to legalize other drugs such as uh, different types of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamines, et cetera, will really destroy that black market and will do a lot more to create peace in these societies, I think, than probably anything else we can really do from abroad. Um, Now, there are downsides to that, of course, um, but there's trade-offs for every policy. Yeah, and and you know, I think the framing of of illegal immigration has always been so important. I think for people that, um, you know, calling them illegals first of all is a is a dastardly you know framing device because it really prejudices everything you say after or think afterwards about a person. Um, but if you call them you know economic refugees or some other such thing, you you 
sort of provoke a very different set of judgments. And I think that's an important question for the United States to consider is how do we want to think about our southern neighbors who are in a complete you know, mess and, and whether we, we think we can do anything proactively to help those countries. You know, I'm skeptical about trying to do development and foreign assistance just the way it's hard here. It's even 10 times harder to do it somewhere else that doesn't have any sort of predisposition to do those things well, but but we can at least stop doing stupid stuff. Uh, and so I'm I'm with you on the war on drugs stuff. The, the one thing that we'll never do, well, we'll never do that, but another thing we'll <laughs> never do that I wonder what you guys think about is I, a lot about the EU stinks, but what I do like is the Schengen Agreement mm -hmm. for the free movement mm -hmm. of peoples. And I think we need to figure that out for our hemisphere because it makes very little sense to me that it's so hard to move across borders. And I know people say, oh, but drugs, oh, but this and that and the other thing. But you know, for our economies would boom with freer flow of people, lower skilled labor, et cetera, et cetera. It would, but um, I, I believe one of the reasons why Schengen was possible to put into effect is the wage gap between the poorest and the richest EU country was about two and a half to three times. The wage gap between the poorest and richest country in the Western Hemisphere is about 11-fold. So we're talking about a much vaster sort of sort of gap uh, in between there. So I think politically that was possible. Um, you know, lots of Polish people went to the UK, for instance. Um, but all of Warsaw did not move to London. Um, whereas if uh, we had some agreement like that for the Western Hemisphere, um, I think it's conceivable that virtually everybody in Haiti would leave and go to Florida. Virtually, and, and the majority of people in El Salvador would come to the United States. It's a very poor country. It's not much opportunity. Uh, and, and they would come here. Now, I, I think that would not be a problem. Uh, the United States uh, has a large growing economy, and uh, these folks come here, they get jobs, they do very well for themselves. So I don't have a problem with that. But I think politically... Um, because everybody kind of knows that this is true, there would not be um, appetite for that. And, and one example of this, I think, is Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico, uh, if it was a state, would be the poorest state um, in the union, but it would also be um, – it's also the richest place in the Caribbean by, by a good amount. It, it's taken a while, but over the last century, um, the majority of Puerto Ricans and people of Puerto Rican heritage are now in the United States. So if Puerto Rico, let's say, was conquered by Spain in – the year 1999 or 1998 instead of 1898 or 1899, then um, I, I I'm not quite sure we'd have that same relationship or we'd let them move here because um, of, of immigration worries. Well, uh, that's that's really fascinating. Let's hit one more thing before we wrap up, and that's uh, from low-skilled immigration to high-skilled immigration. So I'm going to talk about student visas because this is something else the Trump administration has been cracking down on. And this has historically been viewed quite favorably in the US by policymakers, even by sort of just people on the street. The, the idea that students come to America from all over the world and that the best and the brightest come here and, and stay and work and improve the American economy. The Trump administration is cracking down on this. And part of their explanation, at least, is national security. They say that Chinese students are coming here. They imply that they're stealing trade secrets. Uh, they say that other students from other countries are coming and learning technologies that they shouldn't be, nuclear technologies, stuff like that. It's all very vague, but there's a lot of scaremongering again. So what's going on with student visas? So the student visas are becoming more difficult to get. The process to getting them um, is becoming more expensive, more time consuming. The United States is shutting down uh, some marginal universities that uh, could be, that are sometimes termed visa mills, which is they sort of um, 
pretend to be a university to get people to come in on student visas and then, you know, sort of like let them go. Um, and they're being very active about that. And there's some abuse of that, um, not like it matters much, but that's the way it is. So the government's sort of shutting that, some of that down. They're using lots of concerns like espionage, like you said, uh, returning back to their home countries with technology. What's interesting is before the Trump administration, the, oh my gosh, they're going back home to compete with us was always an argument to, well, let's keep them here by making it easier for them to get visas to stay here so that they build their companies and discover their technologies and, and, and employ um, uh, Americans here. The administration has not been following that. There's basically two uh, – there's basically three major ways for students to stay here permanently um, or for a long period of time after they graduate from American University. The first is called OPT. Um, this is basically training uh, up to about uh, 30 months. They can train, work in a U.S. company here. There's another way. It's called the H-1B visa. This is a temporary visa for uh, skilled workers and specialty occupations, $60,000 minimum salary, highly complicated, very regulated, 65000 a year, 20000 if you graduate from an American master's program, uh, 20000 additional spots for those folks. The government has been making it more expensive, increasing the fees, uh, increasing the rejection rates for that. And the third way is the employment-based green card system. Uh, this is the way that you can become a lawful permanent resident. If you stay on this system for five years, then you can uh, naturalize and become an American citizen. Um, the government has increased the denial rates uh, for these across the board. Um, now, the problem is, of course, um, the system is so messed up and so arcane that the wait list, if you're an Indian national, for an uh, for an employment-based green card, it's currently about 150 years. Not like it matters too much for those folks uh, at this point because you're not going to get it anyway. Uh, but for for Chinese, for for Taiwanese, for other you know Pakistanis, for other groups, uh, for Europeans, skilled immigrants to the U.S., uh, it's an incredibly chaotic, arcane bureaucratic, expensive system that this administration is making a lot worse. And it keeps saying that it wants merit-based immigration. Everything it's done has done the opposite. It has pushed against skilled immigration, has made it more difficult for these folks to come here. And the legal change that they propose, that Tom Cotton proposed to do, called the RAISE Act, which he said would create a merit-based immigration system, would actually cut skilled immigration. So if the president knows what he's doing, big if, then he is being very cynical and saying one thing and doing the exact opposite. Sounds like that's all we have time for today. So thanks so much for joining us, Alex. This was really helpful. Um, and thanks to everybody at home for listening. If you like the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. 